also, as I said, I want to talk now about how this all comes together and then how potentially we can break this cycle, get out of this rut, have a different relationship to this whole process. So just looking again at the, at the cycle, um, the circle that I've printed on one side, my simple version of dependent origination that I feel basically is all you need to understand is in the inner circle where we recognized past causes and conditions, whatever it took to get us up to here, up to this moment. <clears throat> the, the ignorance that's kind of pervasive, that's, that's more of a general, universal kind of um, set of conditions, but then our own personal manifestation of that through sankharas, these volitional formations of thought, word, or deed. So that's the background. It's kind of, if we look behind, there, there, there it is, the baggage. I heard someone say the baggage that we're dragging around. This is very much what that is. And the next set of links, this human experience. We're human. We have a mind and a body. And, it, you know, basically it's working. All of the senses are working. And there's this mind that's very bright and attentive and orients to things, has a sense of itself. And then something happens. So this, there's the past, there's this present moment experience of awareness, of awakeness, or ignorance, as the case may be. And then something happens. And then there's the response. After contact, um, the event that happens, feeling tone, as we said, is immediate. It arises with the contact. And sometimes it can feel like the actual contact, the event itself, is the Vedana. But Vedana is, so i just use a simple um, example of pain in the knee, you know, as you're sitting here meditating, can feel like the unpleasantness is in the knee itself. But it's not. It's a mental response. It's a mental um, relationship to the physical experience. And why that's important is, and many of you probably experienced this, can sit in meditation, knee gets painful. If we turn to it with mindfulness, openness, curiosity, that same uh, experience, uh, that same sense data that we were labeling unpleasant and painful gets interesting and actually breaks up and sparkles and stretches and it can even become pleasant if at least not neutral. Um, neutral if at least and perhaps even pleasant. So the same experience. It's, so it's not the experience itself. I think we were talking a little bit about this before that Vedna is conditioned. There might be a lot of things that we agree on. We'd all agree was unpleasant, all agree was pleasant, but it's a, it is a response of the mind to this um, event. What happens next is where we do have more choice. And the classic choice point is this moment of Vedana, this moment of recognizing pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is considered to be the place where we can get off the wheel, where we can break this cycle. If we don't recognize pleasantness, what happens? What happens in your circle? What happened in your circle when something was pleasant as you went round in your group of 10? Huh? Clinging. 
Exactly. We want it. And when it's unpleasant, push it away. And when it's so that it's this recognition. Has and has anyone practiced with someone said to me that Vedna has become their main practice? Has anyone who who has practiced in this way and what was your experience practicing with Vedna? Yes. I find it very helpful. Yeah. Um, it it takes a lot of practice though to catch that that point because I'm usually down the line further. Uh, but one thing I notice is if I can do that, it's much easier to respond wisely yes. at that point. Yes. But the important thing is not to think that we have to catch it. You know, at that, wherever you notice, and I, you know, I can be sitting in meditation, and you're, you're getting grumpy and grumpy, and all of a sudden realize, oh, this is unpleasant. Yeah. So it's been unpleasant for some time, I just haven't recognized it. But if I can recognize it and name it in that way, yeah. something shifts in my relationship to that experience. The mind lets go. And part of what this, this whole teaching points to is the power of naming experience. It's true, it's, it's a big inchoate mass, and I hope you, you got to see that as you went around your circle, how you know, it's not discrete like this. But any time we can stop and say, oh, this is what's happening. Even if we're saying, oh, I'm suffering, we're right around there in old age, sickness and death and suffering. Even saying, oh, I'm suffering, will put a break in that amount of, something shifts as we name experience directly. And so this gives you a lot of different places for you to name experience. And it's one of the powers of this teaching. It's not just, I need to catch it, you know, and if I don't catch it, boy, I might as well give up. It's like anywhere, as you feel that sense of self becoming, you can catch it. Did you, have you had it? Yeah, I just wanted to relate the experience that I had the first time uh, that I went through this uh, uh, practice of Vedna, mm -hmm. uh, I thought it was the dumbest thing ever. And I kind of raised that question in, in, the, uh, in the retreat, and I think it was you that answered. And you said, eventually you'll get it, and you'll see how powerful it is. Because, And I could really sense from the way in your body language and all that that you had really a lot of uh, emotion around how how good this practice was. I was very attached to it. You, <laughs> I wanted to avoid that word. <laughs> uh, but I've, I've since come to realize how really uh, life-changing that was for me to have, uh, have done this practice. Hmm. There are instances now when I have uh, some pain and you know I really get caught up in the pain mm -hmm. and suddenly I realize, hey, wait a minute, this is just unpleasant. Mm -hmm. It's nothing else, it's just unpleasant. So it's been, it's been really uh, great. Thanks, Dennis. And the, uh, the phrase, and I find myself saying too, oh, it's just unpleasant. Because what happens when we don't do that is it's a whole story. My knee or my problem, my relationship, my anger. But if we can just say, oh, it's just this. It's like this. Again, this is this nama rupa. It's this orienting towards, but in this case, skillfully saying, oh, this is what's happening oh, that's why I'm suffering, or that's why this is difficult. Something releases in that, and it allows us to be fully present. It doesn't magically disappear. It doesn't change 
very much often what's happening, but our relationship to it changes. And this is what this teaching offers us at all these different points. As Christina Feldman says, to me, the significance of this whole description is that if we understand the way our world is created, we also then become a conscious participant in that creation. So instead of sort of, you know, being on the merry-go-round or whatever those rides are that take you around where, you know, there's no off point, it's like, oh, you know, I'm choosing and I can choose this relationship or that or I can wake, you know, it's not you can choose, you can wake up. If you wake up and notice, wherever you are. So don't think you have to get, you know, be right there at that second. You will find, you know, if you're in craving, the reason we keep doing it, it's pleasant on some level. As much suffering as there is in it, we need to recognize and acknowledge how pleasant, or else we, we're not stupid. We wouldn't keep doing it. So we need to recognize that, oh, that's why I like chocolate or opening orphanages or having a BMW, you know, because it's there's ple it feeds me in some way. And that's actually another um, analogy that Tanisara Bhikkhu talks about of this cycle is feeding. And, you know, we think usually of food and feed feeding as, as pleasant unless, as he says, unless you're the being that's forced into being the food. But even as the eater, you know, there's a sense of pressure about, uh, you know, the horses down the front, I have to feed them every day. When I bring those feed buckets out, boy, you know, they are not nice little horses that, you know, you want to snuggle with. They want their food and they're big and they can be aggressive. There's a, there's a, you know, talk about this unquenchable thirst and you see it in animals. You know, we're lucky most of us get to eat when we want, but even so, you know what that's like. So it's another way to look at this is feeding. Phyllis, did you have a question? Someone had a hand up back there. Oh, there it was, sorry. Um, you know, as I've watched this, I found that a lot of times uh, what's actually happening in the moment for me at least is unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And then the, the drive for the pleasant, a lot of times just to get away from the unpleasant. Yes. Mm -hmm. As opposed to actually enjoying, like a lot of times if I'm doing something, and people, is that really enjoyable? The honest answer would be like, it's just less unenjoyable. Than <laughs> it's no. not so much that it's so enjoyable, but it's it's distracting me from the thing that's actually not pleasant. But that and that's really important to see, and it's one of these kind of negative feedback loops or whatever that you could see in this. It's not that we're always chasing after the pleasant, is that we're our life is driven by chasing after the pleasant and running away from the unpleasant or replacing, and there's a text, I don't have it in front of me, where the Buddha said the untaught worldling, which is us, the only way they know how to deal with the unpleasant is to try and stuff in more pleasant on top of us, on top of it. The, 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 the um, liberated, you know, noble one knows that there's just unpleasantness, or there's just this experience. This, this is really key. It's called, uh, you know, uh, uh, one part of the teaching is called the second arrow, which is, you know, there's the initial unpleasantness, and then the, all the why me, and this shouldn't be happening, and what about this, and, you know, we do it all the time. It's, it, we're, we're caught in this relationship, and the, the, the wisdom is to just come back, and can we be with? whatever it is that's difficult, whatever it is that's unpleasant, and you know, to really be honest with ourselves and see how we are driven to you know, all of these actions out of wanting the pleasant 
and avoiding the unpleasant. And as you say, when, in talking about pleasant, it's just that it's not unpleasant. It's not that, you know, we're always oh, having a great time in this avoidance. We're often really stuck in that. So, no, that's very true. So the, point, the real point is um, to wherever we notice, we can wake up. And so we can um, look and go around this whole wheel and just talk about what would it look like? And actually, the way the Buddha phrased it all the time, um, two, two ways. The cessation cycle is just with the cessation of ignorance, sankhara ceases. And it doesn't mean you know, all our conditioning goes away, but you know, with one, whatever it is that was forming one particular you know, conditioning, if the ignorance around that ceases, that conditioning can just, that tendency, that habit pattern can just dissolve with the ending of sankharas like that. But I think for us, it's more helpful to actually look at each one and actually see where would you wake up? What would that look like with each um, movement of the cycle? So with ignorance, what would that look like? What would waking up, what would stopping the cycle at ignorance look like? Some kind of insight. Insight, seeing clearly. So, and that implies being in the moment with what is. And it could be insight about anything, you know, because as we said, ignorance is vast. What, what are some more concrete examples, though, of what that might look like? Yes. Being satisfied in the moment. Exactly. Yeah. It's because the ignorance, the thing is the Four Noble Truths, cause of suffering, desire, being satisfied, content. Um, Sumedho, Ajahn Sumedho, who's this great teacher, lives in England now. <clears throat> he says, if you start with avidya, ignorance, <clears throat> excuse me, you'll always end up with suffering. The light is getting dim. I'm going to have to use my glasses. I encourage you to start not from a vidya, but from awareness, vidya, and wisdom, panya. Be that wisdom itself rather than a person who isn't wise trying to become wise. As long as you hold to the view <clears throat> that I'm not wise yet, <clears throat> excuse me, but I hope to become wise, you'll end up with grief, sorrow, despair, and anguish. It's that direct. It's learning to trust in being the wisdom now being awake, even though you may feel emotionally inadequate, doubtful or uncertain, frightened or terrified of it. And I love that description. It's not, you know, that I, I'm someone trying to become wise. In this moment, I can be satisfied, content. I can actually wake up and trust that. <clears throat> A big part of our delusion is not trusting our wisdom, is not trusting what we know, knowing what we know. And it's not to you know, make that into something about we're all awake and we need to know it, but just the simple fact of we doubt ourselves, we doubt our experience, we doubt our minds, we doubt our understanding. <clears throat> He's saying start with wisdom, start with knowing what you know. So this is vast. We could go on for ages, but uh, don't need to go on with this one. So 
what would be something at the other steps? So I talked about ignorance. If you're suffering, what about looking for a cause of that suffering? Instead of blaming, you know, what we, and we would look for a cause. I don't mean, oh, I'm suffering because of that situation or that person, but in your own inner experience. We can look inside and recognize suffering is born here. Inside, it's, you know, there are outside factors, definitely, but n there's a bold statement. No one can cause you to suffer. We create our suffering through our reactivity, through our own minds. How do we get more in touch? Meditation, staying present, being in the body, having the sense of understanding our process. <coughs> what were some of the other things I said about ignorance that would be a way out of ignorance? So if I was sitting here listening to you and not understanding what you were saying and started to feel your contraction mm -hmm. as a result of that, uh, and I would certainly I'd create a story, mm -hmm. I'd probably keep telling that story over mm -hmm. and over again. At some point in time, I would realize that that story <clears throat> was based upon my own sense of self. Mm -hmm. And that would be the point in which I would Yeah, off. yeah, great. And so it can happen anywhere in any form. Yep. Yes, at the back. Well, that, that obviously helps at some certain level, but I'm talking more about psychological suffering, about, you know, the suffering that we, we experience out of aversion or desire or, you know, not quite knowing what's happening. So, yes, there are many things we can do to um, support a sense of well-being in the external and education as part of that, but on a more direct moment-to-moment -moment level. Yes, at the back. I guess... Um you know, we said it earlier, you know, insight or meditation, but perhaps guided by those, you know, kind of Buddhist core three principles, you know, that things will change. Mm -hmm. So if you're stressed out in five minutes, you may be happy. So it's, it's like a faith almost, you know, which overcomes, you know, the, the illusion of catastrophe. That's great. So, so you know, that there's change, that there's not really a self, so that, you know, that I'm responsible for everything, everything depends on me is kind of an illusion. And then I guess the third one is, is you know, that, that suffering. I guess you just have a different relationship. You sort of befriend the fact that life has some suffering. So I think those are all either attitudes or beliefs. Definitely. So that's classic. There's a three characteristics. So it's really understanding the three characteristics of unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and not self. And any one, all three, any one of them in any kind of form can actually wake us up into what are the three again? unsatisfactoriness. In, um, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, anicca, dukkha, anatta, three characteristics. Yes? Well, step one would be mindfulness. And that's the big one. Thank you. You know, it really is about becoming present because we see in ignorance, we've told a story. Someone already said, you know, tell a story. <coughs> we need to come into what's actually happening. And so mindfulness gives us that possibility of coming in, into into this present moment with what's actually true. And again, I talk, talk, we've talked a lot about perception and how we filter things. It's like, what can we know as directly as we can? You know, can, we, can we let go of some of the projections, some of the filtering, and, and be more directly in contact?
What about sankharas? This is a, a, a more challenging one. I mean, it's all of our conditioning. What would that look like? Psychotherapy. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually really true. If you're you know? trying to dig up baggage, mm -hmm. you know, you bag of rocks, then that's an approach. Yep. There are, and there are lots of modalities out there, you know, psychotherapy, you know, holotropic breath work, you know, Feldenkrais, whatever, you know, all of this stuff we can do. And it's all helpful. Great, you know, it's one of our blessings. We have access to the, those kind of things. Yes? I also got the impression that volitional formation was really habit, and it's almost like if there were a psychology equivalent, it would be behaviorism. So it's almost like all our behaviors, habits, thought patterns, cognitions, and I keep thinking of Jack's explanation of meditation with the puppy. He says, like, when you're trying to focus, you know, it's like a little dog. You don't beat it. So, so it's kind of a gentle compassion. Yes. Nudging towards better things. Exactly. And part of that is, um, is accepting that this is where we are right now. You know, we've ended up with this, these conditioned patterns. And it's a lot for me is compassion. It's like really compassion for how screwed up. I feel sometimes, you know, how, how complicated life is. It's like opening to it, accepting it, and, and seeing that even in this, as personal as it seems, there's, it's not self. There's not anything permanent, fixed, or stable about it. It's this changing flow of experiences that has some uh, um, regularity to it, has some patterns in it. But to see, it's again, the three characteristics and be helpful. If we can actually open to that, we don't feel as locked in. Where we get locked in is when we identify, when we take this and go through that into becoming and really say, this is who I am. So we see it, even sankharas, as impersonal, unsatisfactory, and not self. Would, would um, karma come into that, where you would, uh, you know, put the coin in the, in the bucket, you know, of uh, compassion, loving kindness. Definitely. And that's part of seeing, you know, that all of where we are, these habits, habit patterns, we can change them. And we can, you know, put the coin in the bucket of generosity or kindness instead of aversion and, and, and enviness, envy or stinginess. So to see it as not fixed, and this is the not-self part, is this is, we are a process. This is a depiction of a process. It's not fixed. It's not permanent, it's not solid, so we can change it. And that's definitely the teaching of karma, is as we wake up to this, we can start to condition patterns of kindness rather than fear or generosity rather than holding on. So, definitely. So consciousness, um, again, it's this knowing um, as I described, of, of just the recognition of, of the six, at the six sense doors, what would be a practice or a, a way to bring waking up right there? Mindfulness. Hmm? Mindfulness. Mindfulness, obviously, and it, you know, we're probably going to get that at every one because it's key, you know, to bring mindfulness to what we're actually experiencing. That that's huge. Yes. It seems also that that's the refuge for emptiness. Uh-huh. So, so emptiness in a kind of a not-self, not, not, yeah. there's not, mm-hmm. So bring in the wisdom teachings, just like the Bahia teaching. You know, in the scene, let there be just the scene without making an I, me, or mine about that. 
There's just what's happening. Yeah, this is great. Well, this is a little, it's a little different in, in, in how it is right now. Four foundations of, you know, the third foundation is chitta. And this is where we can get kind of confused because that can also be referred to as mind or consciousness. But that's more the contents of mind. So it's a little bit different, but obviously it helps. Yeah. Um, it seems to me, I'm speculating here, but it seems to me that the same type of thing that you can do, like Dennis was talking about, the Vedana um, practice, could be potentially useful here. In other words, if you can, if you can disambiguate or if you can distinguish the actual, you know, eye consciousness, ear consciousness from the interpretation that comes. Definitely. Later, if you can become sufficiently fine-grained to detect that subtlety. Um, then that opens up, as somebody else said, kind of a little window in there where you can choose not to label, not to interpret in yep. a certain way, not to, not to get that ball rolling. Exactly. Right? Difficult to do, yeah. but possible. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, meditation, what it shows us is that there, we have many more choices than we previously thought. But ne I don't want to pretend that this is easy, but possible and quite exquisite. If any of you have ever sat in meditation and just tuned into hearing without the mind moving one way or another with that, it's, it's really quite a profound, or, you know, even just eating your food, and sure, it's pleasant, but just being fully there for the tasting without, you know, thinking about past and future or wanting more, just being fully present for that. There's an awakening that happens where we don't, you know, we're not sitting there, you know, I always think I'm on retreat, you know, is there room for seconds? Is there more of what I want? We just are fully there with that experience. So what about Nama Rupa? Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, mentality, materiality, name and form. Nama, name, but it's really, uh, and it was these um, six or so factors of feeling, perception, uh, contact, attention, intention. It's kind of this orienting. Bill said that Stephen says it's this sense of meanness. Um, yes. Yes. And that's exactly it. Again, another pointing, mindfulness is obviously key in that. But where we get caught is when we make things solid, when we make this story, this is me, this is what I'm like, this is all that can happen, this is the only possible response or the only possible understanding or relationship I can have to this. And we see, oh no, there's all these little factors going on. If I can pay attention to any of them, I will shift this cycle. There will be a different response to this. So that's key. Yes? Um, is it, I'm just taking a guess, but is this kind of at the heart of non-dual? You know, this whole mind-body split here, is this maybe just getting at seeing things non-dually? Well, it is in the sense, as you said, more about consciousness, about that bare knowing. Say a little more about why you think it's right here. I mean, I can kind of get it. I have the hardest time with this one, so I'm really just guessing. <laughs> okay. I thought the same. I had the same exact question, actually, because, the, because it becomes about self. Yeah. It's what, it's what creates the dual. Mm -hmm. reality. When you start going with intention, my intention, mm -hmm. my attention, mm -hmm. my, that's what starts splitting you apart. So if there's some sort of Advaita, sort of non-dual approach or practice that you can use to kind of keep that duality from emerging at this point. I think that's 
That's what I was... Yeah, yeah, okay, so now here we're going. And this is actually a little in response to Marsha, who asked before about intention and free will. What is it that intends, you know, my intention? So the understanding is in the, it's woven throughout the Buddha's teachings. He will say, when someone says, but you know, who is it? Whose karma is it? And whose intention? He just says, wrong question. Intention is happening. And uh, just like you said, if you can break it down, you see, this is basically what this is saying is, we are just a process. In this process, you cannot find anything that is solid or self. It's all in flux. And the same with this Nama Rupa. It's just these factors coming together. And yes, they're conditioned. So it can feel like the only response I can have to this moment is this. It's aversion or it's wanting because that's, you know, my, it's all my mind, my awareness is seeing is that as a response. If you dive in a little deeper and see, no, it's just conditioned. It's not... It's not a truth of the situation. It's certainly not the only thing that's possible. So that releases us a little. Oh, I had something I was going to say. I lost it. Yes, it's about free will. And oh, so what, where I see, thank you, where I see this comes in, where the, the key is, is in some ways this, this debate between free will or determinism is a boondoggle, you know, if you see it one way, it is that way. If you see it the other, it is. It, 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 essentially, it doesn't matter. Because whether, but where I see it does matter is if I believe I have a choice, then it's up to me to make a wiser choice. And wouldn't I want to have a choice? Uh, wouldn't I want to be an active participant in the way my life unfolds? Wouldn't I be more likely to want to wake up and, and, and actually grow and learn and, and explore if I felt I had a choice? My answer is yes. If I feel that it's all predetermined, I'm packing up and going home right now, you know, and turning on the television. What's the point? But if I feel I have a choice, then it's like, again, the wormhole, it opens up to all these possibilities. How does that choice point happen? Mindfulness. Mindfulness where we wake up and see, oh, I tried this last time. Boy, that got me into trouble. What about trying this this time? Or tunes into our inner experience and says, what's actually true for me right now? What do I actually um, feel drawn towards or want to express? Mindfulness is the key. And so in that moment, there it's not that there is a self that's a fixed thing saying, let's do this. It is just all a process. But it's a process, and again, the language gets confusing, in which we're an active participant, but there's no solid thing there that's me, Sally, that's the same as I was yesterday and will be tomorrow. It's just a process. But mindfulness is key in this process, in making a choice point. But all that happens is intention intends. This has kind of become a little clear to me. Someone gave this example where, you know, you, uh, most of the days I, I don't have to get up at a specific time and I wake up pretty early and I'll lie in bed for a few minutes, but all of a sudden I'll just get up. It's kind of like, what happened? And he said, that's what it is. You know, you're lying in bed, 
if you have that luxury and you think, oh, I should get up soon, and all of a sudden the covers are off and you're up. And it's like, I don't remember deciding to do that. It's just intention decided to do it. And that's what happens a lot of the time. Yes, we can create a sense of self and will about this, but if we look more deeply, we see all that's happening are factors of perception and attention and intention out of our past experience. So it is where the coming together of, you, you could call it the non-dual teachings, it's just seeing that at the heart of this, it's not saying there isn't a sense of self. Of course there is, and it's very real. But that sense of self is just created up, and I've got this other whole list here, this two pages is, is explicating each one of these with, each one has two of this and four of that and whatever. And I thought, I'll bring it just in case, but I didn't want to go into it. Um, it just, you can dive in and anyway, just see, it's just, oh, the, underneath that process, there's this process. And impacting that process, there's this other process. So out of that, we create a sense of self, very real, but it is just this stuff happening, to use the technical term. This is what it is. It's a great antidote for shame, isn't it? Yes, yes, for all of that kind of, any sense of guilt or blame about what happened. And it doesn't mean we can't be, as, as Gil Fronsdale said, you're, you're not to blame, but you're responsible. Right. And there's a very big difference. So it does mean, you know, what, but whatever's happened, we can't change that. So it's no sense carrying it around like a big load of baggage. Oh, I'm a bad person. But the point is to recognize if we bring mindfulness to this moment, then there's the choice, how do I act? And perhaps more skillfully, more kindly. So that's what I mean. You, you can, this... It's not simple, but this teaching, you could feed every aspect of the Buddha's teaching into it and spend a lifetime just kind of understanding all the ways that this uh, manifests. You know, in a sense, under, um, mindfulness seems to kind of undermine the notion of determinism. It may not mm. get you to free mm -hmm. will, mm -hmm. but at least it undermines determinism because it's not all set in place. It's something else that comes to the party mm -hmm. that potentially changes the outcome, even if there's not you making a decision. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's it's the game changer. Yes? I'm just trying to... I'm, I think what you're saying is really profound for me. Um, I was uh, thinking about the process for me to get to this retreat. I actually, at one point sort of set an intention without mm -hmm. any real commitment about four months ago to come to Spirit Rock when I was in this part of the world. And uh, there's a couple of different times when I've looked at the website and wondered, will I be there at that time and what's going on and <coughs> stuff like that. But I never really, I never really was committed. Mm -hmm. And in fact, yesterday I had to make, well, two nights ago I had to make a decision. Mm -hmm. uh, my husband passed by the place and saw the sign. He said, it's right there. And I, oh, <laughs> well, maybe I really should go. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to deal with the should piece. Mm -hmm. And I think I believe I have to set my intentions. I should set my mm -hmm. intentions. But this process really happened. Like, I waited until it set me. Right. Does that is that a phrase you would use? Yes, yes, that intention just intends. and But even, I, I don't want to, out of this, again, to say that we're a lump on a log and we don't create intentions. 
you know, Spirit Rock wouldn't be built without millions of intentions of people planning it and funding it and building it, etc. But even within that process of strong intention, there's not something solid doing the intending. There's just this whole set of patterns happening. And it can feel, if we don't look at it, very solid. I'm intending at the end of this day to go home and I know where my home and I'm gonna drive there. Very solid and I'm hoping that it happens. But within that, it is just this. You know, it's just this cycle. And I want to get to why this is important at the end, so let's just keep going. Where are we up to? Nama Rupa, six sense spaces. Six sense spaces. So these are, and again, I, I, these three, I really feel, really overlap. You know, the consciousness is the knowing, but, the, 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 but it's helpful just to draw them out a little. So what six sense spaces? What would be practice? How would you wake up? What's a, what's a wise way of relating to this part of the wheel, this part of experience? Marsha? Meditation. Oh, renunciation. Yes. And I talked before about the practice of guarding the six sense doors, which is an expression of renunciation. It's like really seeing, and again, not out of sackcloth and ashes where Buddhists we shouldn't be happy or enjoy stuff, not that at all. But just seeing when they're unguarded, when the mind is untrained, we are led by the nose by all this kind of stuff. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy things, doesn't mean life can't be beautiful, but we just need to make wise choices and see, be conscious participants in this process rather than being led by the nose of the next pleasant smell or taste or touch or experience. So it is, again, mindfulness. Well, I was thinking two particular um, forms of meditation, walking meditation mm -hmm. and uh, eating meditation are, are really good to get at that, mm -hmm. to really develop that sense of... Having the sense doors yeah. be open, yes, yeah. 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 The exercise we did, the last one we did, mm -hmm. was really good that way. Mm -hmm. I just found myself really just being so aware of so much mm -hmm. input yes. all yeah. the time. Yeah, and that's part of it too, is most of the time we're overwhelmed by it. This is why we do the filtering, right. because if, you know, it's why some of the, um, you know, the, the psychological illnesses people have, a, a lack of filtering. Right. We need to be able to filter, but we need to bring wisdom to that filtering. Another classic um, practice on this is asuba practices, which the uh, very traditional Buddhist practice. Suba means beautiful, asuba not beautiful. It's actually contemplating, you know, which in this culture we don't like to do. Contemplating things that are unbeautiful. The classic one is the body in its essential nature of blood and pus and bile and phlegm and bone and marrow and you know, hair is beautiful when it's on your head and yucky when it's in your food, you know, just to really look at that whole aspect. So that's another classic one. Okay. Yeah. What about hallucinogens? What about them? <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if that might play a role in this. I'm not sure if that would be skillful enough. Opening I mean, I, the doors of perception? Yeah. Yeah, because it really, I mean, the senses are strongly impacted by hallucinogens yeah. in specific ways. It gives you a different perspective. Well, uh, you know, that's why we do meditation as kind of the natural mm -hmm. high, as they right. say. Um, and I always say to people when they're having distorted experiences in meditation, which can happen quite a lot, 
and the same as with hallucinogens, it's actually helpful because we get to see that what we take to be this reality, you know, I know what, you know, I know, I don't have to look at this anymore or relate to it because I know what that is instead of as you do with drugs, you know, oh, wow, <laughs> you know, wow, <laughs> and taste, you know, wow. Yeah, so hallucinogens, yes, not what the Buddha recommended, but, you know, could be helpful. And anything that, as I said, opens the doors of perception where we see that the way we normally relate to things isn't all there is, I think is helpful. Holotropic breath work, that's another natural high, you know, where you do the breathing and you really enter an altered state. It's like, well, yes, it's, it was... It's conditioned, but when you're in it, it's as real as anything, you know, so I think it's really helpful. Otherwise, we get into the du very dualistic way of relating. Mm -hmm. Yes? Uh, what about the mantra uh, practice? Is, is that uh, one way of responding to Which mantra practice? Any type of mantra. Turning your mind towards your mantra. Mm-hmm. Well, any, you know, mantra practice I take to be a concentration practice that calms the mind. And so, yes, it would be more of an inward turning rather than going out through the senses. So, yes, anything that collects the mind I, could be a helpful practice. So mantra practice, metta practice, again, mindfulness practice that just actually stays with the experience instead of ex extrapolating it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So contact, what can we do about that? Yes. Um, I, I think the first thing that came to mind was like the Eightfold Path, Right Livelihood mm -hmm. Association. So you can't control everything, but you can certainly put yourself in certain places. That, and that's great. You know, just wise association, you know, contact, our contact has been very different today than if you chose to go to the Metroplex and watch three movies in a row, you know, watch Clash of the Titans or something. It's a very different experience. So yes, when we're in, a, in an experience, we can't control the contact, but we can make choices to what experiences we put ourselves into. Um, another classic teaching of the Buddhas is wise attention. Even, you know, as I said, there's all sorts of stuff happening but we can, you know, direct our attention towards and minimize the contact of some things because we're focusing on other things that we know are more helpful and more beneficial. So there's both the actual choices as to where we put ourselves, but then even in our experience, we can minimize the potency of some contact by focusing on others and wise attention to things that actually bring helpful states of mind. What about feeling, Vedana? Yes? To recognize our feelings, to be able to step aside from them rather than being <clears throat> taken away from them. Exactly. We've talked about this. And this is considered, as I said, the classic place that you, that the, the feeling is, it comes, at, you know, we're on this whole cycle, can't change that. The ignorance is here, the sankharas. But here is where it gets volitional. Feeling arises, what we do with this, really key. Most important thing I want you to get from this is not that you have to catch it, write it, it's arising, but that any way you notice the feeling tone, you can actually create a different relationship. Just noticing the feeling. Yeah. Especially like, um, for many of us in these times, a period of non-stimulation is actually unpleasant. Mm -hmm. 
but there's no recognition. Mm -hmm. So it's that void that is unpleasant, and so what you're going to go to is, is stimulation. Is stimulation. That's, that's so, uh, in this culture especially, right. we're, we have an anathema to, you know, nothing happening. And on meditation, people say, I'm bored, nothing, ha yeah, well, that's, that's the deal. Something's and wrong. Something's wrong. Yeah, if I'm not stimulated, something's wrong. I need to get something going here. Craving. Mm-hmm. Impermanence. And uh, say a little more about how that would operate. Well, with feeling, you, if you stay with the feeling long enough, you can see, you can see it change. Mm-hmm. Oh. And with craving, too, mm -hmm. craving will fade. Yes. You know, I have a faith in that sometimes, too. This craving, I, I feel the more I practice, the more I realize, this craving is here, but it's going to go away. Yes, and that, you know, when we're in it, all we see is the craving, and if we don't pay attention, bring the mindfulness, bring that awareness of impermanence, it's like, I have to satisfy this. It's huge. It's all I can see. It's, it's, it's my world at the moment is this craving, and recognizing tomorrow, like, what was I thinking? What was, what was that all about that I had to have, whatever it was? Yes? Uh, related to that is sometimes um, when I feel like uh, having some chocolate, I'll say, well, if I still feel like that in 10 minutes, then I'll have some That's great. Yeah, and just to see, literally see, uh, Joseph Goldstein has a great link. Restraint allows us to see the impermanent nature of desire. So just, and again, I'm not sitting here the killjoy Buddhist, but there are many things that we go out towards that aren't that healthy for us, even as we want them, or we can't have them and we are in suffering. Just that restraint, that letting go. Just let's see what happens with this. And, you know, really, again, this is why we did that exercise is to see, you know, we have this idea that the chocolate will make me happy, but, you know, reality is. It, we kind of even know it, but we still, we still want it. We still want it. So restraint, that's a great one. There's a great... Oh, yes. I was just going to say, also sometimes it can be helpful to kind of consciously Exactly. To literally, and this is wise attention, take it away, you know, you don't go, what's an example, it, it, you know, if you're on a diet, you don't go to the all-you-can-eat buffet. You actually take your attention to somewhere where it's helpful. You go exercise or do something like that. There's a great term in uh, Buddhist practice, nibida. It means disenchantment. And it's kind of seeing, and you've been referring to it, to really see, recognize that, and the images of a dog gnawing on a bone that's completely bereft of blood or flesh or marrow. And he said, after a while, he goes, you know, there's nothing there for me. This is kind of what nibbity means, disenchantment, where we really, we really get that it's not out there. You know, as, as enticing, you know, it's like, oh no, but this one. I know the other ones didn't do it. I, now I know that. I really got that. But this one, yes. Yeah, I was just thinking uh, to take a, another point of view. 
I personally have a swimming pattern that I've had since I was quite young. And I've noticed in my life many times people say, I'd like to swim, but I just can't make myself go. Mm-hmm. I think about the water and it's going to be cold and a few things like that. So there's a lot of people who have an aversion mm-hmm. to that exercise, mm-hmm. whatever it is. It just happens I'm talking about swimming. Mm-hmm. But I overcome that with habit. Mm-hmm. I commit myself, and I have for years and years, to three times a week. And if I don't do it on Monday, then I have to do it on Tuesday or I won't get off to the right Mm-hmm. Thing and so, but the the habit and the commitment overcome the aversion. Aversion, yeah, yeah, and that's when it's a skillful habit. Obviously, you know, and there are many skillful habits that that are great for us to commit to of exercise and meditation and you know acts of compassion for others. These are all things that we can make commitments to to overcome this inertia. And a lot of, you know, we're talking a lot about desire, but the same process operates around aversion. It's like, I know it's good for me, but I'm just not going to do it, you know, and all the reasons that we have of why not. Yeah, yeah. You know, classic uh, antidote for craving is generosity or renunciation. And craving and clinging, it's a little hard to distinguish sometimes. You can, hopefully you felt in your exercise a little bit the... um, the difference between the two, but they really, they kind of glom. But renunciation or generosity, metta practice, where we actually bring another person's welfare into our heart and really spend time with that. So we lose this self-centered obsessiveness that we can have. So this, you know, here there's enormous practices that we can do around craving and clinging. Yes? Um, Maybe not a great idea, but another Craving, just binge on it uh-huh. until and you, you develop an association between that craving and the terrible feeling you have afterwards. Afterwards, yes. Could just turn you away from Totally. It. You know, that's why I gave you the example a bite of chocolate cake, great. I can eat a slice, great. If someone made me eat the whole cake, oh, you know, it's unpleasant. And so we see, you know, the what can happen if. And, and can use that skillfully, yeah. But if it's buying BMWs, you might run into trouble pretty quickly. <laughs> Depends what it is. What about becoming? Yes. Uh, becoming aware of or putting your attention on the stickiness mm-hmm. instead of on what got you there, mm-hmm. that's what you were Mm-hmm. The stickiness. And for me, you know, I, as I said before, I, it's almost experiential. If you start to pay attention when you take on this identification, whether it's a good one or a bad one, you can feel it kind of experientially and just feel the stuckness of it. And uh, for the, you know, as we look more and more to a sense of freedom and openness, that sense of stuckness isn't that pleasant anymore. That sense of being identified, fixed on something, it, it grates a little. So we can we can start to tangibly feel that for both of these. Well, I'm thinking we know that we're going to go through these cycles, and I particularly relate to the idea of new careers, and mm-hmm. phases mm-hmm. of life, or new marriage, or you know that that level. <clears throat> Sometimes you want that new beginning, and you want to get it. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you want to get it less sticky than last time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I wonder how you even begin to think 
all about intention. You know, of course we're going to have new careers and new, new experiences and this, this um, sense of self will arise. It's inevitable until we're fully awakened. We are going to be on this wheel. It's up to us to clarify or purify it as much as we can. And it is about intention. And we can, you know, a new career. I'm going to be the best teacher that these people have ever seen. That's not a wholesome motivation. But I can sit here and recognize in this experience, I am the teacher, you know. But I, can, I don't have to hold on to it with a sense of better, worse than, you know, or I hope they like me, you know, how many people are there. There's a whole slew of mind states that can come with that. Or there can be just the simple recognition. This is the process I'm in right now. How can I do it as skillfully as possible? So yeah, it will keep happening, definitely. It's, it seems to me that um, one thing that's been very helpful for me is just to maintain an awareness of my body. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything we're talking about, it almost gets down to that. Totally. I mean, that's where you know yep. the truth. And then it, it sort of frees you up to have that choice you're talking about. Exactly. And I keep coming back to med- mindfulness and awareness coming into the present moment. We use the body to do that, to then be aware of what's happening. And the, the body gives us clues, but the real, what it, you know, what's really important is what's happening in the mind. So we pay attention to that, but we need to come into the present. And the body gives us that information of contraction or leaning forward or pulling away. And the more we pay attention, the more we notice those subtle signs. So it's, the information is there. We just need to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a suggestion. You said something before um, to some of the early ones, generosity. And for becoming and birth both, I think, um, um, acts of service, mm-hmm. volunteering, something yes. like that. Because instead of, it's almost like in order for this, this false sense of self or the, you know, the small sense of mm-hmm. self, if you will, and the birth of the ego to take place, um, the the fewer people that are kind of in your your range of contemplation, the easier that is. Mm-hmm. So if you kind of stack open, it with open other it up, people yeah, being, yeah, then it makes it harder for you to kind of laud yourself to the point yeah. where you get that. You see, and totally, I think it's a great point, and also it just widens your reference field of what what reality experience is like. It's not all about me, you know. It's it's we're in this together, and we're just a small part of this whole dance of life. Right, and a, and a sense of authentic, sort of authentic pride, instead of kind of an overweening pride, yeah. which is sort of baseless in some ways, there's a sense of really doing something productive. Well, and, what, and, and the Buddha often talked about the value of reflecting on your good actions, yeah. and that, you know, what's an, not, there's another, it's not pride, it could, you could say pride, it's certainly not conceit, it really is right. a sense that right. I'm doing something valuable. Right. This is helpful, we need yeah. to have, if we're going to have a sense of self, let's have it be one that's grounded. grounded and doing good actions and that we're cultivating, you know, and helping other people while we're doing it. Yeah. I have gotten in the trap, though, of really liking that I'm such a good person to do service. Oh, totally. Really you can... Dangerous. The, the mind has no pride. It will, it will take hold of anything and make an identity. Look at me helping these people. Aren't, you know, I hope people are noticing what a good person I am. Or, you know, we can get a high out of it. People get, a, 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 you know, it's an adrenaline rush or whatever to be helped. So all of that is true and it's still better to help than not. 
And we just need to keep refining our intention, refining our motivation. It's all we can do. Well, just another slant. Both of those, the becoming and the craving, the unpleasantness in both of them. Yes. That's a great one, Barbara. Thank you for going back to that. The one thing I often point people to is even in its pleasantness to look and see the seeds or sometimes it's quite obvious the unpleasant, the, the suffering nature of desire, the wanting, because the, wanting always implies you don't have it. You don't have it. And even as you're holding on to it, there's some fear that it's going to go away or that you won't control it or it won't do what you want it to do. So to feel that, to feel the suffering nature of desire, I think that's really helpful. We're running out of time, and I, I had two meditations we were going to do, and I've just ended up talking, and I have a whole closing. So quickly, quickly, birth, old age, sickness, death. <laughs> the class, birth, not being born, not, not landing. You know, we, we feel this mom momentum, and we just open up to being in the process, not landing with, look at me, what a good person. Just, all right, just doing, just intending just being. It's possible, it's possible to not actually come out and, and plant the flag and say, this is me, this is who I am, but to actually let go at that point and just be again in process. And then old age, sickness and death, suffering. What do we do about suffering? Well, my friend here says we just die. We just die. <laughs> But that in this, talking about a suffering, that's an ending of suffering. I mean, there's actually can be something pleasant in that. But how do we get to that point? Well, there's always change. I mean, mm -hmm. this, this cycle keeps going. Yes. So in a way, hurry up and die and go for the next <laughs> change. Right. Get it out of the way, right? Get to yeah, the, go next for the next change. Just to break the cycle. Uh-huh. If we're already there, yeah. Well, yes. I mean, that basically is sort of what we're talking about. Marsha, what were you going to say? So we took that the first arrow the second arrow. Yes. Yes, the first arrow is whatever the pain is, and the second arrow is why me? We can totally let go of that and, and just be with the experience as it is. Experiencing it. Experiencing it. Yeah. And what, what, to me, it's equanimity. This is how it is. This is the first noble truth. There is suffering. There's nothing wrong in the sense of it shouldn't be happening. This is the nature of things for us to suffer. So when it happens, we can accept it. doesn't mean we wallow in it or we don't you know, do what we can to alleviate it, but we don't add that second arrow of saying it shouldn't be happening. It is the nature of things. Whatever way we've taken birth, the nature of it is it to end, and in that end, whatever grief or loss or struggle or resistance we'll have will be there. If we can just accept the ending, can accept it, it's, it's not suffering in the same way. And so the, uh, many teachers like to say, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So we've used that word suffering, but I think it sometimes is helpful to distinguish the pain of just, you know, the body, the mind, and suffering is this extra, the angst, the anguish, the stress around it, to really see it's optional. At any point, it's optional, and that's what's key. We're really running out of time, and I'm rushing this last, this is meant to be the best bit, I'm sorry. I want to end with some words from the Sutta Nipata, the Buddha. For some people, contact 
the point where sense plus object meet is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any signs of broken chains. Broken chains. But others come to understand their sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize the total calm. The calm comes from the end of grasping. They understand it, and the stillness fills them with delight. We're so geared to being and doing and wanting. And the Buddha's path is, in this moment, we can just be with what is and find a delight there, a contentment there, that is beyond anything that experience or the external world can offer us. And I know you've all had tastes of that or you wouldn't be here today. We just need to trust that capacity that we all have to find that place of stillness that opens to everything. It includes everything. It doesn't deny any aspect of our experience, the most beautiful or the most difficult. But in that moment, there's a sense of recognition, a sense of aliveness, of awakeness, that is the promise of this path, the possibility of this path of practice. And that is what I wish for you, moment after moment after moment. And I hope that this teaching today was helpful for you. I actually haven't done a whole day on this, so I didn't, you know, it's always hard to know what parts will take longer or shorter. Um, I really, if it's new to you, it's, uh, just a beginning, I put these resources down there, really encourage you to read them and do your own study. They're great books that are freely available. And um, really look forward to seeing you again at Spirit Rock sometime. But we can't end because pages of announcements. What was that, that, that quote from the Buddha that's from Mark? Sutta Nipata. Sutta Nipata 3.12. The Devayatana Nupasana Sutta. Devayatana Nupasana Sutta. Contact. <sighs> For me, it's been a lot of talking. For you, a lot of listening. I hope uh, not too many words. Um, I hope that uh, if you're new, somewhat new here to Spirit Rock, you come back. If you haven't done a retreat, uh, as I said, I'm doing a couple of retreats later this year, one on concentration which someone already mentioned they were hoping to go to. It's a great retreat. The Living Dharma one, if you're interested in study, it's a great retreat because we do this kind of thing. We do sessions where we, and we have experiential exercises like the one we did here. Not on, we take the Four Noble Truths and the um, uh, Satipatthana Sutta and we look at that. So there are um, things you can do here. Look, look in this brochure and see what kinds of events and on the website will further your practice and your study. Personally, I really feel that we need both. We need the, 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 the practice is so important, the retreat practice, the daily practice, but we need to have a context in which that happens. So hope you can continue with that. Um, do I have to do all the upcoming events? No. 
I'll see if there's anything I think is interesting. Yeah, skip through and highlight that. Sokni Rinpoche, it's going to be full, but if you can come, he's great. Sokni Rinpoche and Sharon Salzberg. Oh, they've got me, Living Dharma Study Retreat, June 28th to July 5th. So that's important. Um, everything that, everything. Be here, who can resist? Be here, wow. Mindfulness meditation, the path of liberation and amazement. I was just with Wes for lunch. He's a great teacher, very funny. Lots of things to do. And having people you practice with, Sangha you share this with is so important. It's so hard to do this alone. So I really encourage you to make the most of your connection here. And lastly, just to, as I said before lunch, to uh, acknowledge that these, my teaching, the teaching here today is done uh, as an act of generosity. No, I haven't received any payment for it. So anything you choose to offer will be gratefully received and will enable me to continue my practice of serving and teaching and um, this process to continue. And I want to thank our volunteers who are volunteers and they're also acting out of generosity and kindness in supporting the process of events happening at Spirit Rock. A lot of people are involved in putting this on, the people who've um, been managing the day. So a lot of appreciation to them. And lastly, I'd like to end a day of practice with a short dedication of merit. So you don't have to change positions, but just to reflect on the fact that we are all incredibly blessed to live in the culture and the society that we live in, to have the ability to hear the Dhamma, to come to a place like Spirit Rock, all of the conditions in our life that have come together that we are able to do this. Innumerable blessings, as challenging as our life might be in all the different ways it can be, we know we are blessed. And we spent the day hearing and talking about and reflecting on the Dhamma, also an incredible blessing and one that generates great merit. It's actually considered one of the best acts we can do is to hear and practice and talk about the Dhamma. So today has been the coming together of all of these conditions of great blessing and merit. And, but in acknowledging that, we re realize that many beings are not so blessed. Many beings live lives of great difficulty and suffering. And so we choose to take the merit of our actions of today, of our Dharma practice, and offer that to innumerable beings everywhere for their welfare and benefit, so that they too may know peace and happiness and that all beings everywhere may be on the path to awakening and enlightenment and discover in their lives contentment, well-being, and acceptance. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.